So, where's my Pilgrim's Progress? Right over here. I love this particular edition of it, and I know none of you have this edition, not even a single one of you. And way back a few years ago, when I was teaching this on Wednesday nights, I wanted to find uh, a convenient-sized paperback that would be uh, a good one that wouldn't fall apart after I'd used it and everything to use on those nights. And I got this at a Barnes & Noble. It is a Barnes & Noble classic. I think I might have gotten it for $5 in Barnes & Noble. We were coming back from a visit to Rachel when she was still living up in Charleston. And I just thought I'd stop in there and, and look, and lo and behold, there it was. I don't even know whether you can still get it in there, but oh, I love this. This is so marked up and dog ears galore and, and all that kind of stuff. Part two. Part two. Here's, here's the title page that shows a little picture of Bunyan dreaming once again, and it shows Christiana and the children and uh, another lady, and I'm sure if you've read these pages, you know who that other lady is with her. But as in the first volume, the more familiar Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan has uh, what he calls here the author's way of sending forth his second part of the Pilgrim. And it is multiple pages in poetic form. I, I, I just stand in awe of his poetic genius, um, amazing. I'm not going to say anything about this, but it's very interesting to read. You just have to sit down and say, I'm going to take my time reading through this long, long, long poem. But here are the words that I read when I come to Pilgrim's Progress in the Similitude of a Dream, the second part. Courteous companions, sometimes since to tell you my dream that I had of Christian the Pilgrim and of his dangerous journey toward the celestial city, the celestial country, was pleasant to me and profitable to you. I told you then also that I saw concerning what I saw concerning his wife and children and how unwilling they were to go with him on pilgrimage. That's the opening sentences here. And in the second paragraph, it ends like this. Now, having taken up my lodgings in a wood about a mile off the place, as I slept, I dreamed again. And here's the similitude of a dream. So, now that I got the board up and operating here, <laughs> a few words are necessary as uh, we look at this to look at some preliminary things from the word and uh, some of these things <clears throat> we may have seen before in other contexts here, but certainly our attention is drawn to biblical considerations with respect to the family, the family. God created the first family, true or false? Well, obviously true. And we don't have to read many verses into the book of Genesis to read the account of that. It was made up of one naturally born male and one naturally born female. Now, I like that statement except the fact that I guess Adam really wasn't a naturally born. <laughs> Neither was Eve for that matter. But you know what we're saying here. 
a home, a family is made up of, according to the scriptures, one naturally born male and one naturally born female. Little did we realize, not that many years ago, how important this language and affirming this language is. You know, in the, the camps that I go to, and I'm sure many other places also, there are doctrinal statements, and if you go as a speaker, you have to agree to that doctrinal statement. And many of these doctrinal statements for camps and other places have added certain points in their doctrinal standards that point to these specific areas that have been, you know, stuck in our face. A third one. It was very good when God created the first family. Like everything else he created, it was very good. What do you think the next statement's going to be? Sin made the first family dysfunctional. Where did the word dysfunctional come from? Uh, it seems to me that the word dysfunctional kind of, kind of came to uh, popularity uh, some years ago. Sin made the first family dysfunctional. Well, can you imagine being dysfunctional for 900 years? <laughs> no? A dysfunctional family for 900 years? Wow. But look at the next statement, you guys. Every family since has been so. Every family since has been a dysfunctional family. Who, who is your favorite family from the Bible? Do you have a favorite family that you would say, that, that looks to me to be kind of the ideal family in the Bible? <laughs> well, we go through the families of the patriarchs, and it's not too hard to put your finger on dysfunction, <laughs> you know, in those. Matter of fact, shockingly dysfunctional in many respects. Rachel. I like Ruth because Ruth, it's Ruth. such a unique situation yeah. where she follows her mother-in-law and the Lord just uses um, different people and, <clears throat> and connects her with Boaz and everything. So it's just, it's just different. I like that answer very much. And I don't think I could really put my finger on anything dysfunctional in Ruth's respect, you know. But I'm sure, you know, I'm sure she was dysfunctional. You know, I was thinking of the home that the Lord Jesus was born into. When, when they are introduced in Scripture, very similarly to the way that Zacharias and Elizabeth are introduced, they are described as people who were very, very serious about their relationship to God. Both of those. Uh, Joseph and Mary are described that way too. And of course, you, you well know that you know, Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus, but in Jewish law and custom, he was considered to be the legal father of Jesus. But Jesus was born into a home that was not a perfect home. <laughs> he was the only perfect thing in the home. Well, where are we here? As history unfolded from Eden onwards, the Bible gives us pictures of numerous families. There are godly families and ungodly families, families of all sorts, some to be emulated, at least in part, some which provide numerous examples of what not to do. The foundational instruction for the family is found in, and here I come to the next slide here, found, of course, in the Ten Commandments and very specifically the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father 
and your mother. That is foundational not only for the home and the operation of things within the home, but of all relationships which have, dare I say, superiors and inferiors, right? So that it, it has to do with employers and employees and all that. But honor your father and your mother for this is right. This is right. That's the beginning of all these, the establishment of the home. Uh, we have parallel passages. I'm several, several bullets down the first section in your notes right here. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, stresses the importance of diligently teaching the children in the home. Uh, we've read this passage a number of times. I think I'm going to read it again. I am. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And <clears throat> beginning in verse 4 through verse 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the Shema. Shema, the Hebrew word, for hear, H-E-A-R, not H-E-R-E. Hear, hear, listen. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That's what they repeat as sort of a call to worship. Every service in the synagogue and in the temple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Unfortunately, those final instructions in the whole thing kind of came to be legalistically, things that they would tie on their arms in a certain way and little boxes that they wore on their foreheads and little things that they nailed in the, you know, in the home and all that. But the heart of the whole thing is, listen, this is who God is. This is what you're to do. You're to diligently instruct your children. Well, you know, there are some other passages that we could read, and I have to, I have to take my watch off. My watch is an unseen thing on my wrist with my sleeve and all. Um, other passages like Psalm 127 and 128, and I actually opened my Bible to those, those two Psalms when we came in with the intention of reading them. They're both relatively short Psalms, five verses in 127 and six verses in Psalm 128. Very, very beautiful psalms picturing the blessings of a godly home and we do have that additional instruction which is in the final bullet in the what i call tables of household duties that paul included in colossians and in ephesians which are like twin epistles very oftentimes described that way but the next thing that i want to just call our attention to is sort of by way of review here and it takes us back to a place that Christian visited on his way to the celestial city, 
the Palace Beautiful. And among the wonderful things that happened in the Palace Beautiful were that he was hospitably entertained and there was so much godly conversation, especially as those four lovely women talked with him there. And one of those women, Charity, in the course of her conversation with Christian, asked him about his family. Charity said, have you a family? Are you a married man? And Christian replied, I have a wife and four small children. Charity, why did you not bring them along with you? Well, Christian's reply to that, Christian wept and said, Oh, how willingly would I have done it. But they were all of them utterly averse to my going on pilgrimage. Did you pray to God that he would bless your counsel to them, says Charity? Christian says, yes, and that with much affection. My wife was afraid of losing this world. And my children were given to the foolish delights of youth. And Charity concludes by saying, Thou hast delivered thyself from their blood, from the responsibility. I wonder how many times in the course of his pilgrimage, and we, we really have no clear indications in the, the story of Pilgrim's Progress, no clear indications of how much time that whole journey took in days or weeks or, or more. As I've kind of indicated, and we'll see more clearly now as we start into Pilgrim's Progress too. Um, certainly a good deal of time transpires because the children who are young as they start out, they're gonna get married along the way. They didn't get married as little children. So I say all that to say this, I wonder how many times during that pilgrimage that Christian went on, how many times he thought about his wife and children? And how many times he prayed to God for them? I, I would think many times. Many times. And so, once again, the story unfolds. Once again, the book begins with the teller of the story falling asleep and dreaming a dream. This is the way he tells the story. And... Uh, I think we should get right into it. Mr. Sagacity. How many of you guys have used the word sagacity in the last 50 years? <laughs> Probably not many times. What, what do you think of with the term sagacity? I'll tell you what comes to my mind, maybe. Maybe Odysseus or Ulysses in, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. He maybe is spoken of as a man of sagacity. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But sagacity is an adjective having good perception or wisdom. Now, why does Bunyan introduce somebody named sagacity here? Ah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why he gave him the name sagacity, but it's his story, so here we go. Very, very uh, unusual to find one of these type pictures all colored in. Somebody took the time 
to color that in. Usually these are just black and white or sepia and white or whatever. A picture of Christian setting out from the city of destruction. There he is. Here's a book. That's got to be Christiana. There are little children who are moved. Christians in rags. And there's a burden on his back. A burden that grew bigger as he went. Hmm. Let's look in our notes here. I'm under persons and places along the way. The narrator of part two begins by reminding the reader that Christian's wife and children were unwilling to go with him on pilgrimage. He continues now to inquire after those whom Christian had left behind. He takes up lodging in a wood about a mile away and there slept and dreamed. In his dream, he met an aged gentleman named Mr. Sagacity and the two of them talked about Christian and his travels. Their discourse is marked by a series of questions. Kind of, uh, there's, there's lots and lots of questions in, in both part one of Pilgrim's Progress and part two. Among other things, Mr. Sagacity said that Christian's journey was marked by molestations, troubles, wars, captivities, cries, groanings, frights, and fears. He lives well where he is, for there is no grief mixed with it, meaning since Christian has reached the celestial city, since he's reached heaven, all those things are past. All those things are done with. Twas for the love that he had to his prince, capital P, that he ventured as he did. <clears throat> now he has rest from his labor, <clears throat> for now he reaps the benefits of his tears and joy. When asked if he, that is Mr. Sagacity, heard anything about his wife and children, he replied that they were doing as Christian himself did. Mr. Sagacity then proceeds to give an account of the whole matter. After Christian had, was gone over the river, Christiana's mind began to be filled with many thoughts of how she had hardened her heart against all his entreaties and loving persuasions for them to go with him. This caused her much grief and many tears. Then she said to her children, Sons, we are all undone. I have sinned away your father. Touching words, aren't they? Touching words. Remember, if I went back to that picture with Christian leaving, remember he even put his, put his fingers in his ears? and ran saying, life, life, eternal life. He didn't want to hear the words of those who were trying to hold him back. And Christiana is now feeling the weight of all that. I've sinned away your father. How grievous is that? And then we read, 
that Christiana had a dream. A dream. The next night she had a dream in which she saw a parchment which recorded the sum of her ways. And she cried out in her sleep, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Again, let me read this. It says, she saw a parchment which recorded the sum of her ways. How many of us in here would like to see a parchment or a sheet including all of our sins? Did you ever see the rolls in a newspaper place which have the paper on them that essentially is going to turn out uh, to be our newspapers aren't even as as popular as they used to be. But I remember going to one of those places, I don't know if it was for St. Pete Times or whatever, way back, you know, in my days at the college and uh, my associations with the soccer team and athletics and being a big volleyball cheer, cheering fan and all that kind of stuff. Trying to find those big sheets of paper that you can make the big spirit signs from. Those, those rolls are monstrous. You need a, a, a you know, a forklift to move them. Do you think one of those rolls could accommodate all your sins or all mine? I should maybe make it for all mine. I don't think so. I don't think so. Especially when we understand the nature of sin. So you, you, you see, we, 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 should, we should pause on this when it says that Christiana saw a parchment which recorded the sum of her ways. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. An essential part of the gospel, isn't it? An essential part of the gospel. And, and, and the grievous nature of sin, the grievous nature of, not sin in general, but of our personal sin. Moves us to the place, like, like charity. Like Christianity, excuse me. Lord, have mercy. On me, a sinner. <clears throat> the last bullet on this page. Then she thought that she saw two very ill-favored ones standing by her bedside. Two very ill-favored ones. Well, that's the last thing on the sheet here. Did, your, did you get a wrinkled brow when you were reading that and wondered, no, who in the world are these ill-favored ones. Who do, who do you think they are? Or what do you think they are? Well, they're certainly not friendly types. That's for sure. Because if we read a little bit further, it says, if she goes on like this, this is what they're saying to each other, we shall lose her as we have lost her husband. And they don't want to lose her. This, this sounds like individuals who, dare I say, are demonic. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Whew. Then she awoke, trembling and sweating, but fell asleep again. This time she thought she saw a Christian in a place of bliss where she also saw him bow his face to the pavement under the prince's feet, saying, I heartily thank my Lord and King for bringing me into this place. 
The next morning, as she talked with her children, there was a loud knock on the door. That's very interesting. She said, if you come in God's name, come in. If you come in God's name, come in. The response was, amen. (laughs) And she thought that to be a good response. The one who came in said that his name was Secret, who was sent by the Merciful One to tell her that he is a God ready to forgive and that he takes delight in multiplying the pardon of offenses and that he invites you to his presence and table. Christian and legions of his companions will all be glad at the sound of your feet stepping over your father's threshold. The individual whose name is Secret. Well, obviously, he came on a mission from God. And the next part is he gave her a letter from her husband's king. Now, now make sure, and I, I don't think any of you would have fallen prey to this, but make sure you understand at this point that Secret did not give Christiana a letter from her husband. It was not a letter from her husband. It was a letter from her husband's king. <laughs> this is from God. Yeah. I'm in the third bullet on this page. He also gave her a letter from her husband's king, which, when she had opened it, had a fragrance of perfume. Wow. It said, the king would have you do as your husband and dwell in his presence with joy forever. When she said to the visitor, sir, Will you carry me and my children with you? He replied, Christiana, the bitter is before the sweet. That becomes a very important little phrase in this opening part, opening chapter, if you wish to call it that, of this story. The bitter is before the sweet. Now, I'm not done with this slide yet. I'm going to add something to it. I'm going to add a background to it. What kind of background do you think I should add? Look at what it is. What is it? It is one of of the maps that attempt to trace Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. This one is one that traces it in, uh, you know, city of destruction right here. We go up that way. Then we go down this way, then we go up this way, and we end up at the celestial city up here. And we all know that if we look at this map, whatever map, whatever map it is that we would follow, you just look through that map again and you'll you will rehearse all the difficulties, and they were not a few. All the difficult when did the difficulties start? I mean, I mean, don't you think the difficulty started when he said to Christiana and those in the town, I've got to leave here. This is going to be destroyed. I've got to leave here. And I have a book that tells me and my burden is heavy. 
And she got all kinds, he got all kinds of flack from the people in the city and her and had to run away with his hands in his ears. That was just the beginning. That was just the beginning. Wasn't far after that that he fell into a bog, you know, a slough or slough or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> he fell into that. And it continues. The bitter is before the sweet. Well, continuing in this, Christiana, the bitter is before the sweet. You must, through troubles, enter the celestial city. Go to the wicked gate. Also, put this letter in your bosom. Read it over until you know it by heart. And this you must deliver at the further gate. I, I, I read this and, and I am always brought to mind of what the Apostle Paul said to the new Christians after he had finished the first missionary journey. Uh, before the second missionary journey begins, we have an account in Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council, and then we'll begin the record of missionary journey number two and then missionary journey number three. But at the end of missionary journey number one, I'm reading from Acts 14, verse 19, but Jews from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. This is when Paul was in Lystra, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Ah, that's where they, they stoned him. They thought to death. And to Iconium and Antioch, where he had problems also, but here's what it says in verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, the young Christians who had just recently embraced Christ, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, now listen to this, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, telling young Christians, press on in your profession of faith, but it's not going to be an easy journey. It's not going to be an easy journey. And right here at the beginning, Christiana is told the bitter before the sweet. Well, let's continue. Christiana gets a visit, a visit from a lady named Mrs. Timorous. Now, would you all like to take a guess of where Mrs. Timorous is in this picture? You have three choices, right? I don't think it's the one on the right, do you? And it's not the one in the middle. There's no question, Mrs. Timorous is yakking away on the left there. Mrs. Timorous. Well, <clears throat> Let's look at this as I have it in the notes. So as Christiana and her children prepared to set out on their journey, two of her neighbors came and knocked on the door. The older of the two, Mrs. Timorous, daughter of the man by the same name that Christian met on the Hill Difficulty, asked her what she was doing. <clears throat> Who was the Mr. Timorous that Christian met? 
he was running in the opposite direction of the celestial city. At, at that point, he was running away from the lions, <laughs> the lions that he saw that were going to get him. As it turns out, the lions were chained. But anyhow, continuing. Um, where am I? Uh, Christiana told her of her affliction over her former actions to Christian, of her dream and her invitation from the prince. This is Timorous. Said, oh, the madness that has possessed you and your husband to run yourselves upon such difficulties. She mentioned obstinate and pliable and the reports that those wise men had brought along with specific reports of the troubles Christian had experienced. Obstinate and pliable. Who were those two guys? Two guys from the city of destruction who chased after Christian hoping to bring him back right away. Obstinate was, well, he was obstinate. Wouldn't change his mind for anything. Pliable? He would change his mind for anything. And when he heard the good things that Christian was saying about the place that he was going to, he said, oh, I'm coming. Take me along. And when they fell into the slough, uh, Pliable got out pretty easily and immediately headed back into the town. Uh, who is the third person? Well, this obviously is Christiana. This is Mrs. Timorous. And who is this? That has got to be the other neighbor who came with Mrs. Timorous. That is the lady called Mercy. Mercy was greatly moved with compassion for Christiana, so she's hugging her here, and for her own soul. Mercy. Compassion for her own soul as well. Well, I hasten on here. Christiana was, remo- was unmoved and resolute and said, all these troubles that I am about to meet with are so far off from being to me a discouragement that they show that I am in the right. The bitter must come before the sweet and that will also make the sweet the sweeter. Hmm. I love that expression, don't you? Mrs. Timorous reviled Christiana and said to Mercy, let's leave her in her own hands since she scorns our counsel and company, but Mercy, who was greatly moved with compassion for Christiana and for her own soul, announced that she desired to walk a little way with Christiana and help her on her way. Well, Mrs. Timorous goes home to her neighbors. (laughs) Do you love these names? One is named Mrs. Bat's Eyes. You ever hear the expression, blind as a bat? Well, of course you have. Mrs. Bat's eyes, Mrs. Inconsiderate, Mrs. Light Mind, and Mrs. Know Nothing. Their names reveal their character. I put in a little bracketed phrase here, methinks that they would have fit well in the jury in Vanity Fair. I think they all would have fit well there. <coughs> Mrs. Bat's eyes said, and here's all their names, <clears throat> uh, 
So we have some of the con uh, conversation in the notes. Mrs. Batts, I said. Oh, this blind and foolish woman. She is named Mrs. Bat's eyes. Oh, this blind and foolish woman. Will she not take warning by her husband's afflictions? For my part, I see, this is Mrs. Bat's eyes talking, I see, if he was here again, he would rest content to be alive and never run so many hazards for nothing. Well, she's dead wrong on that one, isn't she? Mrs. Lightmind said, come, put this kind of talk away. I was yesterday at Madame Wanton's with other like-minded individuals, such as Mrs. Love the Flesh, Mr. Lechery, Mrs. Filth, and others. And there we did whatever was necessary to fill up our pleasures. Listen, if you read more between the lines there and read some of the footnotes that I was able to read in the book, I mean, um, Madame Wanton is portrayed as the, the madam of a place of ill repute. That's what she is. These others who are gathered there for drinking and all kinds of other illicit things. Wow. Meanwhile, Christiana, her four sons, and Mercy, who was young as well, had begun their journey. Christiana said to Mercy, I know well what will be the end of our pilgrimage. Nor will you be rejected, though you go only on my invitation. The king who has sent for me and my children is one who delights in mercy. <laughs> I love that phrase. The king who has sent for me and my children is one who delights in mercy. Our God is a merciful God. Is he not? Oh yes, he is. But I see this as, as uh, I hope I'm not reading into this here. When Christiana says this, the king is one who delights in mercy. He delights in the young lady who's going to accompany them, whose name is Mercy. The king delights in mercy as well. Well, Christiana was glad she had a companion and because Mercy had fallen in love with her own salvation. Well, let me read to you the rest of those bullets, and I think we'll have a minute or two left here. When Mercy was still hesitant that she would be welcomed, Christiana encouraged her to go with them to the wicked gate, and there she would further inquire for her. Mercy said, then I will go thither, and I will take what shall follow, and the Lord grant that my lot there shall fall, even as the King of heaven shall have his heart on me. Christiana was glad not only because she had a companion, but also because she had prevailed on mercy to fall in love with her own salvation. Christiana also rejoiced that Christian had mourned and prayed for her, and his Lord and ours did gather up his tears and put them into his bottle. And now both I and you, and these, my sweet babes, are reaping the fruit and benefit of them. I love, I love what that says there. I love what he wrote. 
his Lord and ours, they gather up his tears, Christian's tears, as he tearfully prayed for his family, and put them into his bottle. And now both I and you, and these my sweet babes, are reaping the benefit, the fruit and benefit of it. Don't you love the fact that God puts our tears in a bottle? <coughs> They're precious to him. They're not ignored. They're not ignored. Uh, you know, there I, ju- I should just say for my own benefit, would that I shed more tears in prayer. Would that I had greater passion in prayer for the lost especially. Is there a list of lost people that you're praying for? I don't think it would be a short list, actually. I really don't. In, in my devotional book that I use every month, every day, in my Table Talk magazine, I have a number of pages in there, and one of the pages lists the unsaved that I know. Is it a complete list of all the unsaved people I know? <laughs> no. No. Do I pray it every day? I'm ashamed to tell you I don't pray it every day. No. This is a great statement here. Christiana also rejoiced that Christian had mourned and prayed for her, and his Lord and ours did gather up his tears and put them into his bottle, and now both I and you and these, my sweet babes, are reaping the fruit and benefit of them. We we pray every week for our lost loved ones, and we have prayed for weeks and months and years. And again, I remind myself and I remind you too, not a one of those prayers has been in vain. Not a one of those prayers has fallen on deaf ears. Lots of things that we're told fall on deaf ears, don't they? Especially us men could confess that. You know, we're preoccupied with other things, what's on the TV or reading a newspaper or whatever. Our prayers don't fall on deaf ears. Our prayers are so welcomed by God that it's as if we're the only one in the whole in the whole world praying. Well, <clears throat> and so the journey is begun. <clears throat> and I hope to have enough room as we do these to put some practical questions for us at the end here. And I've done that this time. Number one. Bunyan had written Pilgrim's Progress Part 1 in 1678. It was a runaway success, read in England and Wales and Ireland and Holland, in Scotland and New England. But it was not without its critics. One criticism that Bunyan had written was that Bunyan had written a story encouraging a man to leave his wife and children. Do you agree with that criticism? No, 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 I would not agree with that criticism at all. But I can see how those who are the opponents of what he is writing would jump on something like that. But you can also see how that would maybe form the occasion for the writing of part two, The Journey of Christiana and the Children. Number two, it is emphasized over and over and over that Christian's journey was marked by many troubles. 
Can every Christian expect this? Or is this only for certain special persons? <laughs> You're not exempt, y'all. <laughs> You're not exempt. Do we all experience the same degree of tribulations and troubles? No, we don't. Not at all. Not at all. But what Paul told to the believers in the city of Lystra and Derby and Antioch, we can expect it too through many tribulations. We'll enter the kingdom. Number three, it is mentioned several times that Christian prayed for his family and that God heard his prayers and answered them in inclining Christiana's heart to begin the same pilgrimage that her husband had taken. Is this encouragement for us as we pray for our unsaved loved ones? How many tears, excuse me, how many years it was that Christian was on his journey before he reached the celestial city? We do not know. What encourages us to keep praying even when those prayers seem to be unanswered for a long time? What, do you have an answer to that? What encourages us to keep praying? Is it possible to get weary of praying for some things? Well, I, I'm, you know, certainly not a feather in my cap to say yes to that one. But we can get weary in those things. What encourages us to keep praying? Rachel? The character and the promises of God. That's a pretty good answer, isn't it? The character and promises of God. A very good answer, I would say. Not, Number four. Ah, true, 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 true. No, 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 no. Sorry, in that, Vicky. No, no. And if Vicky is saying, imagine the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners, you know, the foremost of sinners, being saved. Let's faint not. Let's faint not. Number four, when deep conviction gripped Christiana's heart, she prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God delights in mercy. Can you think of a passage from the Bible that illustrates this? Public. <laughs> what one? The publican and the Pharisee. The publican and the Pharisee. Those are virtually the, the very words that the publican spoke when he was, wouldn't so much as lift his eyes to heaven. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went to his home justified. He did. Well, for the next time, read from the Slough of Despond to when they reached the interpreter's house. So, again, I wish we had chapter numbers and everything, but, you know, not the case. You'll manage. You'll manage. <clears throat> any last words from anybody in the peanut gallery? Hey, hey, hey. I have these for you. Hmm? You want one? Okay. You know what? I, since, how many of you are going out the back door? The back door. A couple of you are going out the back door. I, I'm just going to slide a chair over here and kind of stick it in the middle of the floor. If you're going out the back door, you can use it as a bookmark. You'll see that here. All right. Let's have a word of prayer before there's a mad rush to the chair. Okay? <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to get started on on this part of the story now. And, uh, Lord, we've seen several things in this lesson today. 
that are very good reminders of our pilgrimage and what we're dealing with. The bitter comes before the sweet. I think all of us have tasted a lot of bitter things. A reminder that tribulation will be experienced in this world before we come to the sweetness of heaven. And that will make the sweetness of heaven even sweeter. And Lord, help us to pray on for our loved ones. Thank you for allowing us to be here today, Lord, in Jesus' name.